because what the government was saying is basically they were taking the position that the Bush administration took initially after 9-11 with enemy combatants who were captured on battlefields, is that no court reviews anything. And that was rejected repeatedly by the Supreme Court. And now they were doing that, and they were doing that not for someone who was captured on a foreign battlefield, like many of the people at Gitmo, but for someone who was living in the United States. They were taking like what the U.S. government had argued for Guantanamo at the zenith of executive power before it was rebuked by the courts and saying, we're going to take that and we're going to bring this onto U.S. soil and create Guantanamo right here in America and have preventive detention in America. Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. Welcome. Today is July 30th, 2020. With me is Jonathan Hafitz. John is a senior staff attorney at the ACLU and a professor of law at Seton Hall Law School. He is an expert on many of the legal issues that affect war on terror cases from indefinite detention and other Fifth Amendment violations to the applicability of criminal statutes to terrorism defendants. The editor of two books of essays on Guantanamo, John is a prolific writer on the topics of national security, the courts, the constitution, and the rule of law. Welcome, John. It's so nice to have you with us on Vital Interest Podcast. Great to be with you. Our discussion today is really to talk about one case and the way in which it we can contextualize it in terms of the war on terror litigation generally and some of the bigger legal questions. And that is the case of Adam Amin Hassoun, born in Lebanon to Palestinian parents, arrived in the United States in 1989 at the age of 27. Hassoun was arrested in December of 2001, among many arrests that were made after the attacks of 9-11 in the fall of 2001 and the spring of 2002. And now, you know, look ahead all these years later. Can you talk to us a little bit about his case? Just talk to us a little bit about what he was accused of, um, what was the alleged activity, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what's happened to him in recent months. Yeah, I think the case is so important because it raises so many issues about what's wrong and what's been wrong with the U.S. approach to detention after 9-11. So as you said, Mr. Assume was swept up in the immigration dragnets uh, that were done by the Bush administration after 9-11. And he's a stateless Palestinian. And he'd come to the United States because he didn't have a home. And he started a family here. Three kids, all U.S. citizens, his wife, U.S. citizen, uh, sister, U.S. citizen as well. He lived here for many years. And during the 90s, he had basically given money to support ethnic minorities and Muslims in conflicts outside the United States, places like Bosnia and Chechnya. And after 9-11, the government took a very different view of that, I think an incorrect view, and viewed him as someone who was a extremist, uh, which is not the case. And they charged him. First day he was ordered removed, they revoked his student visa 
he was then charged with uh, material support for terrorism. But again, not, there was nothing in there that was directed, that nothing was alleged or that he did that was directed to the United States. Nothing about 9-11, Nothing correct? about, correct. And so he was prosecuted and he was prosecuted in the same case as Jose Padilla, the former enemy combatant uh, who was accused of, uh, well, originally was accused by the Bush administration of uh, plotting a terrorist attack in the United States. And so he, he's arrested on material support charges, um, and he's convicted and he's sentenced to how many years? He's sentenced to 15 years. Uh, and I think a couple of important things about the judge, Judge Cook from the Southern District of Florida, who presided over a four-month trial, I th- so was very familiar with the case, the allegations of Mr. Hassoun. And she specifically said in sentencing him that he involved no threat to the United States, no threat to American lives, American property, American interests, that this was done to provide aid to people fighting in conflicts abroad. And so she rejected the government's demand for a life sentence. In fact, she rejected the government's demand for a sentence of 30 years and instead sentenced him to 15 years which was reduced for two years of good behavior. But Judge Cook was emphatic that Mr. Assoon had not done anything against the United States, although what he had done was a crime. That was because of the sweep, the inordinate sweep of the material support laws. But she was very clear that he had not done anything against the United States or against American lives. And the ways in which the material support laws were used after 9-11 for behavior before 9-11. Exactly. I, I think it's safe to say that had there been no 9-11, Mr. Sue never would have been prosecuted. Okay, and then what happens? He's sentenced. He's sentenced. Uh, he serves his time in uh, federal facilities. As I said, it's re- it was reduced for two years of good behavior. And then in October 2017, he concludes his sentence. And because he was not a citizen and because he had no longer had immigration status, he was uh, handed over to the custody of ICE and the immigration authorities. In normal, in the normal set of circumstances, Mr. Assume, a person in his circumstances would have been removed or deported from the United States, returned to their home country. But because he was, by unfortunate circumstance, a stateless Palestinian, there was no natural country to send him to. Lebanon had not granted him citizenship. They don't grant citizenship to Palestinians that are refugees that are born there. And the United States was unable to find a country to send him to. And so under the law at that point, once you're ordered to remove the United States, and if the government is not able to remove move you and your removal is not foreseeable, the government can no longer hold you. They need to release you under conditions of supervision. And that's because the rationale, as the Supreme Court explained in a decision from 2001 called Zadvidas, is that there's no longer any immigration authority or basis to hold you. They're not holding you to effectuate your removal or your deportation. They're simply holding you because they suspect you pose a danger. And that's basically preventive detention, which we believe is prohibited under the Constitution. Just in terms of preventive detention in the United States, how prevalent is this? What's the history of it? What's the category? The history of preventive detention in the United States is that it's not allowed. The the history is there's not a single case where the Supreme Court has said you can detain someone preventatively based on the things that you believe that person might do. We can imagine, I think very easily, how that power would be grossly abused by the current administration or even an administration that people are more comfortable with. We don't give the government the power to lock people up based on what they might do in the future. So the only forms of what we call preventive detention that are allowed under the Constitution are for individuals who are mentally ill, 
because they pose a danger to themselves or others because they can't control their behavior. And that's grown to include sexually violent predators. And the rationale is still that they're mentally ill and so they can't control their conduct. Quarantine is another example, as we've learned about through COVID-19, where the government can confine you or require your confinement for a certain period of time, not because they think you're going to do something dangerous, not because it's some kind of minority report scenario where they're predicting future conduct, but because you have, in that case, a disease that you would spread and endanger others. And then the last category is wartime. We've allowed for, which is not a form of civil detention, but a form of military detention where the government holds combatants or prisoners of war, as historically was the case. Uh, And it's not because we think those people are dangerous. That's not the rationale. Historically, it's because they're fighting for an enemy army and you're allowed to hold them until the conflict is over. But within civil society that is outside the war context and within the United States, we've never had preventive detention. What happened in Mr. Assoon's case is after the government was unable to remove him, a district court ordered his release and said, under the law, his removal is not foreseeable. You can't hold him anymore. Uh, and at that point, the government started making noise about invoking these exceptional authorities. So let's just let's just talk about this for, yeah. for a second. His sentence ends for good behavior a couple of years early in October of 2017. So the first period of time after 2017, when his October 2000, when his sentence ends and he's put into ICE custody, that's to remove him. And so ICE is within its authority at that point to hold him while they seek to remove him to a different country. And then by 2019, it's clear they're not finding a country. They, they haven't found a country. It's not foreseeable they're finding a country. Who knows how hard they're actually trying. And the judge says, that's it. Your time's up. Right. Mr. Asu needs to go free. At some point in the future, if they find a country, he can be re-detained to remove him. But until then, you don't get to hold him because you think he's dangerous. Then what happens? Well, then the judge says the government at this point, they would have to invoke some other authority. That's District Chief Judge Garachi in the Western District of New York. Mm -hmm. At that point, the government invokes a regulation that was promulgated after the Zidvitis decision in 2001, which on its face says you can continue to detain non-citizens who've been ordered removed, who can't be removed, but who the executive believes pose a threat to the national security or safety of the community. And so they invoked that exceptional authority to say, we're going to hold him. And so what happened was after the Zidvitis decision in June of 2001, the court said you can't hold someone indefinitely if they can't be removed. There was some language in the decision, dicta, which said, we're not considering terrorism or other special circumstances, what would happen in those types of cases. And so then you have 9-11, and after 9-11, Congress passes the Patriot Act, which contains many provisions, uh, but one of the provisions picks up on this language in Zidvitis and says, if the government cannot remove someone and that person poses a threat to national security, they can detain them indefinitely, subject to habeas corpus review of the merits of the facts and the law and the basis for detention. So even Congress, even though they took this step to authorize a sweeping power, which we think is unconstitutional, they still built in this core protection of habeas corpus and they're saying, if you're going to do this to someone, you've got to go to a judge and the judge gets to look at the facts to see if that person is actually a threat and can order their release if, if not. But what the immigration authority did, the INS at that point, now DHS, is after the Patriot Act, 
they promoted on their own this regulation under Section 241.14, which said we can detain indefinitely if you pose a threat to national security, but did not provide for any review and instead said the only review you get is review by the DHS secretary. So basically they said we're giving Chad Wolf the power to lock someone up for life without review. And so when they sought to hold Mr. Assoon after they couldn't remove him, the judge had ordered his release, they invoked the regulation first because they wanted to try to avoid this kind of judicial review. And only several months later, they invoked the Patriot Act as a second basis for authority. So both were in play before District Judge Wolford in the Western District of New York. And then that section of the Patriot Act also, had it been used before? Never been used before. Never, Never been, been used, used So also crossing another threshold of we're in new territory, where exactly are. So then what happened to Mr. Hassoun after the district court opinion? So after the district court opinion by Judge Garachi saying he had to be released, the government invoked the regulation. We filed a habeas, a new habeas petition challenging this mm-hmm. detention as unconstitutional, saying you don't have this authority to hold people indefinitely without charge, period. Even if the government had that authority, you have to give them due process. And so we pointed the court to the cases I mentioned before about civil commitment. So even the people who are civilly committed or sexually violent predators who are held in civil commitment after a sentence, they get rigorous due process protections. And even the so-called enemy combatants at Guantanamo get basic due process habeas protections to challenge their detention. Because what the government was saying is basically they were taking the position that the Bush administration took initially after 9-11 with enemy combatants who were captured on battlefields, is that no court reviews anything. And that was rejected repeatedly by the Supreme Court. And now they were doing that, and they were doing that not for someone who was captured on a foreign battlefield, like many of the people at Gitmo, but for someone who was living in the United States. They were taking like what the U.S. government had argued for Guantanamo at the zenith of executive power before it was rebuked by the courts and saying, we're going to take that and we're going to bring this onto U.S. soil and create Guantanamo right here in America and have preventive detention in America. And the district court rejected that in two ways. First, Judge Wolford said the regulation was unconstitutional, that the DHS had no authority to issue it, and that it violated due process because you can't detain someone indefinitely, potentially for life, on executive say-so. Chad Wolf, Bill Barr, don't have the authority to say, we're going to lock you up for life, court doesn't get to look. And then the court turned to the Patriot Act and said, I understand you have an argument that this is unconstitutional, that the government can't do that no matter what the allegations are. I'm not going to address that right now. I want to see what the facts are before I make my ruling on that. And so the judge pointed to the very clear language in the Patriot Act, where Congress had said habeas review of this kind of detention and in order to hearing on the detention saying, let's let's see what the facts are. The government says, Mr. Assoon's a threat to national security. Judge Wolford said, this is all coming from these jailhouse informants. It's all multiple levels of hearsay. And I, I, you know, I want to know what the facts are. I want to get to the bottom of this. So the judge ordered a hearing and ordered limited discovery so we could learn about the allegations. And then the case proceeded from her ruling in December 2019, ordering the hearing until June when the hearing was supposed to happen. And I can fill you in a little bit on what happened in between, because I think it's very important. Yeah, please do. So during the process, the government's case totally and completely collapsed. 
it became apparent that their key witness, uh, the one who they based their central allegation that Mr. Assum was going plotting some future terrorist act, uh, a gentleman by the name of Shane Ramsendar was a serial liar. He had been previously convicted of uh, embezzling, uh, defrauding immigrants out of $1.8 million. He had been discredited before by the FBI as an informant, and they dredged him up for this case. And what became clear was that he had made up the same lies about some fantastical plot that Mr. Hume was plotting that he'd essentially cut and pasted from prior cases. And he had completely lied. And what's, what's more troubling even than the fact that Mr. Ramsendar had lied, and he had done this, he admitted to try to get relief from deportation. He was facing deportation. So he said, I'll give you this information if you give me a break and don't deport me. You know, so he was doing it like many informants do, just to, to save his own skin. Right. But what's more troubling is that the government and the Department of Justice, they knew this. They knew this was happening. They had Mr. Ramsendar's immigration file. It was in plain sight. And they had seen that Mr. Ramstar had, had made allegations up, that he was making, that it was very clear he was making this up, that he was getting a benefit, and they refused to, they did not turn it over to us. And we, we only learned this by happenstance. We happened to get a hold of this immigration file, and we presented it to the court. In addition, they had, had alleged that um, Mr. Asun had threatened Mr. Ramsundar in the facility, and that there was video evidence no such video evidence existed. And then when they found out the video evidence didn't exist, they never told the court about it. So they left these allegations of false evidence, lying in the court, didn't correct it, um, in, in gross violation of their duties. And worse, they had actually used this threat as an excuse to try to get the court to dismiss Mr. Soon's case altogether. And it was totally false. And so we moved for sanctions against the government uh, attorneys and against the government agents that were involved in, in this destruction of evidence and this hiding of evidence. And uh, that motion is still pending. So what happened with Mr. Ramstar is the government at once saw the light of day. And it only saw the light of day because the judge ordered a hearing. The government withdrew its reliance on Mr. Ramsendar and the case continued to move forward. The judge had established a hearing date originally in April, but was postponed to June because of COVID-19. And then every other informant the government relied on was proving to be not credible. And so days before the hearing, when the government was supposed to put on its case before the judge and present actual evidence to support its claim that Mr. Assume was a, such a grave threat that he couldn't be released under any conditions of supervision, even with an ankle grip monitor or anything else, five days before the hearing, they said, we're moving to cancel the hearing. We can't meet our burden. We can't, we don't have evidence. Not only did they say that we don't have evidence under the standard the judge set, which is clear and convincing evidence, which is the standard for civil commitment cases, but they said we can't even prove our case under the preponderance of the evidence standard. That's the lowest standard. That's a standard for just right. regular civil cases, damages cases. That's the standard that the courts have used for the Guantanamo cases. They said we can't even meet that standard, and they moved to cancel the hearing. The judge granted the request and ordered Mr. Hassoun's release. And then what the government did is, even though they couldn't prove their case, they then appealed to actually two circuits, saying that the courts should stay Mr. Hassoun's release pending appeal, so for months, maybe years, until the appeals were finally decided. Yeah, let's talk about this two courts of appeal, this bifurcated appeal process. Uh, how common is 
that. And also, let's talk about what it means to bring in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, because it brings in the habeas Guantanamo issue, right? It sort of overlays these two things in a way that one of the things that sort of coming out of your narrative of the case, and we're going to get to in a little while, is how some of the things we feared about Guantanamo's violations of due process and of constitutional principles and of standing law could infect and spread to the criminal justice system in the United States. Yeah, so this is it's it's unusual, it's unheard of. I've never seen anything like this. And it, here's how it comes about, and, and here's why it's wrong. It comes about because, in this case, because the government relied on two sources of authority. It relied on the regulation that we talked about, yeah. and it relied on the Patriot Act. Right. Now, the regulation, because the case originated in the Western District of New York, appeals would go to the Second Circuit. That's the appellate court that covers that region. The Patriot Act, the government's alternate source of authority, it has a provision in it that says all appeals, no matter where the case originates, go to the D.C. Circuit, okay? And that the D.C. Circuit law applies to those cases. The appeals, no matter where the case is, will go to the D.C. Circuit. Has that happened before? I mean, it's happened in the Guantanamo cases, but not by statute, just by circumstances. So in other words, if you're in the United States, resident or citizen, and you are accused on a terrorism offense, that is not the Patriot Act. The appellate process is the district court, the appellate court in which the case is brought, and that's it. This is something separate. Yes, it's a special provision for Patriot Act cases. And, the, and it says the Congress in enacting the act said if it's an appeal, no matter where the case comes from, it comes from California, Florida, New York, or any appeal of the habeas will go to the DC circuit. And they channeled it in the, in, into that court. It's unusual, I don't know anything like it in the detention context, but there are examples in the patent context right. where yeah. Congress channels a type of case to one circuit. And so that was what Congress did. And so the Patriot Act case goes to the, or the Patriot Act appeal goes to the DC circuit. So what the government did in an effort to get two bites at the apple said, well, we're gonna seek a stay, an emergency stay of his Mr. Rassoon's release pending appeal in the second circuit because of the regulation mm -hmm. and then the DC circuit because of the Patriot Act. The problem with that is, as we argued, the, the Patriot Act says appeals of all issues. Of all, so the whole, the whole case properly belonged in DC. Mm -hmm. So the Second Circuit doesn't have jurisdiction even over the appeal. But in any event, that's what the government did. They filed this emergency stay pending appeal to try to forestall Mr. Assoon's release in the United States. At that point, effectively, as soon as the ink was dry on the order uh, or thereafter, the government identified a country for to remove Mr. Assoon to. I can't disclose the details that led up to Mr. Soon's removal, but uh, ultimately the government notified both courts that it had suddenly found a country that Mr. Soon could be safely removed to and that they were seeking to remove him and that his removal would be concluded before the end of this month, that they give themselves a deadline of July 27th. At that point, the DC circuit did what was appropriate and, and waited. I said there was nothing to probably nothing to decide because Mr. Soon was gonna be removed. The second circuit, uh, in something I've, I've never seen, uh, a, a truly rogue act by federal appellate judges issued a order granting the stay, which the government wasn't asking for at that point because the parties had agreed to a temporary pause until Mr. Assoon could be removed, granted a stay, and then said the order would be, an opinion would be forthcoming. Now, in the meantime, Mr. Assoon was removed. He was removed on around July 24th to Rwanda, 
which had uh, graciously accepted him uh, and uh, did so uh, notably in accordance with international law and the Convention on Stateless Persons, providing assistance to, and resettlement of Mr. Hassoun, who was stateless, a stateless Palestinian. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Hassoun was removed to Rwanda, where he is uh, safe and free. And uh, he and uh, our whole team are very grateful to the Rwandan government for its, uh, for its actions. So I, I think in that sense, it was a very you know, happy ending. The, the, the litigation and the what happened in the district court made clear the government had no evidence and forced the government to find a place that Mr. Hassoun could live freely. So for Mr. Hassoun, he's now free from detention after uh, 17 or 18 years in U.S. custody in the last year and a half with absolutely, you know, or what was a totally illegal detention under the regulation and under the Patriot Act. And so in that sense, I think it's very important what happened in the district court in terms of the idea that you have this judicial review of the government's allegations and, and kind of and thinking about this more broadly, as I said, we believe that the government has no authority and should never have the authority to preventively detain anyone in the United States without charge. Citizen or not a citizen, and it's the same due process clause, Karen. So while the Patriot Act applies only to non-citizens, if there's a constitutional precedent that allows preventive detention for terrorism, it would apply equally to citizens. But even if the government had that power, which we think it should not and cannot have, the habeas corpus suspension clause, the habeas statute, and the due process clause require that the person be given an opportunity to at least challenge the allegations in a meaningful hearing before a judge. And that's what Judge Wolford did. And lo and behold, once the government's allegations were put up to scrutiny, uh, and not scrutiny of a criminal trial, Judge Wolford was very careful to say, this isn't gonna be a criminal trial with all those bells and whistles. This is gonna be a basic fair hearing where I'm gonna say, is this true or not? And it, it turned out as we've seen time and time and time again after 9-11, the government's allegations were just built on lies and fabrications, and they just played games with national security. And so I think it's very important that what happened in the district court as a precedent about why habeas review is so important. And what's so interesting is that this is the same argument that we've been having with the government since 9-11. The question of indefinite detention is not allowed. And yet we've been fighting it, or you've been actually fighting it on the front lines with the ACLU and a lot of your writing about, you know, what is this category they will not let go of, of indefinite detention, both in Guantanamo and now here on American soil. So I just want to bring you back to the fact that there were U.S. citizens held in custody in indefinite detention as enemy combatants right after 9-11 and just like Hassoun, right? Was he declared an enemy combatant? He was never declared an enemy right? combatant, no. Right. So it's it's interesting that he got out of that category, but other people didn't. Do you want to remind us of some of those cases, some of that early enemy combatant? Because in a way, what happens afterwards is he's treated like an enemy combatant. Yeah, he's, he's treated like an enemy combatant before three Supreme Court decisions saying you can't treat enemy combatants, even enemy combatants that way. So right. it's kind of you know, mind-bending and terrifying in a true sense what's happening in this case. So... After 9-11, the government, the Bush administration, invented this novel category called enemy combatant. Right, so it didn't exist before, this enemy combatant. And so here they create this language for a new category in the idea that it won't pertain to standing law, that it'll be its own new category. Is that correct? Yeah, they invented 
this category of enemy combatant to hold people under as wartime prisoners, um, primarily individuals captured in or around the Afghan theater after 9-11, but not only there, other places abroad like Bosnia where there was no war going on. And as you mentioned, even people who were captured, a few people were captured, two people in particular in the United States. Mm -hmm. And they called them enemy combatants, the Bush administration did, so it can invoke wartime authority to hold people without charge, like you do prisoners of war, who don't have to be charged with a crime. It's this sort of narrow exception to the normal rule that you don't detain people without putting them on trial. And rather than calling them prisoners of war, they called them enemy combatants in an effort to circumvent the Geneva Conventions. So to say, yeah, not, you're not just a wartime prisoner, we can hold you indefinitely, but you also don't have any legal protections under the Geneva Conventions, including protections from torture, uh, and so there's no war crime liability. There's no, you're, you're just a prisoner outside the law. So that's why they invoked this enemy combatant theory. And then for good measure, they held most of the people at Guantanamo or at Bagram in Afghanistan, where they were outside the sovereign territory of the United States so that the Bush administration could argue unsuccessfully, ultimately, that they didn't even have habeas review so that a court couldn't actually even review this legal category. Now, at the same time, the Bush administration did have three enemy combatants in the United States. One was someone named Yasser Hamdi, who was originally at Guantanamo, and then uh, after a few months, um, a dual citizen. The United States because he dual was a dual citizen, citizen and right. they didn't want to sort of undercut Saudi and US yeah. relations or the Gitmo, their legal position at Gitmo by having a citizen there. Correct. So they moved him to the US. There are the two other cases, though. I think the most more relevant cases for our discussion here are the case of Jose Padilla and Ali Almari. And uh, I represented DCLU, uh, Mr. Almari, in his challenge to uh, his detention as well. It, these were individuals who were arrested in the United States. Uh, Padilla was a citizen, Almari was a lawful resident, but they were both arrested in the United States. Padilla by the FBI in O'Hare Airport. Uh, Almari actually at his home in Peoria, Illinois, and they were uh, held initially in civilian custody. Padilla was held as what's called a material witness, which is someone the government wants to hold because they believe they have relevant evidence in a criminal proceeding. And Almari was held also as a material witness, and then he was indicted on credit card fraud and false statement charges. But in both cases, the government, the Bush administration by executive order, interrupted the civil proceedings and declared these two individuals enemy combatants and claimed they posed a danger to the United States, put them in a military brig in South Carolina for a prolonged period of time, almost two years, incommunicado, uh, without any access to- Also where Hamdi was kept. And engaged in abusive interrogation tactics of these, uh, against these individuals. Now, ultimately those legal challenges both worked their way to the Supreme Court, the Padilla case, first and then the Almari case. And in both instances, the um, government, the Bush administration with Padilla, the Obama administration with Almari, mooted the cases by transferring the individuals back to civilian custody to avoid a Supreme Court invalidation of their authority to use the military to uh, lock people up in the United States. Something I'd add that we should be, uh, again, very worried about given what's happening in Portland, what happened in D.C. at Lafayette Square. So all of this is, uh, you know, eerily current. Just talk a little bit about what happened with Almari, because I think it's also relevant and important. Well, so Almari was, uh, so he was about to go to trial for credit card fraud and false yep. statements, 
Which, um, by the way, many of the initial indictments after 9-11 were those kinds of cases, credit card, document fraud, etc. Yes. And the government yep. suspected that he was, had been involved in terrorism, that he was a, supposedly, a, he, they alleged he was an Al-Qaeda sleeper agent, uh, yep. which they never proved. Although the government charged Omari with sort of commercial fraud, they alleged or they suspected that he was involved in terrorism. But as you said, many individuals who were suspected of terrorism were charged with other crimes. And there's a long history of the federal government charging people with a crime that's not necessarily their principal reason for wanting the person imprisoned. I mean, Al Capone yeah. being you know, indicted and convicted for tax evasion being the most famous example. But suffice it to say, Mr. Almari faced a very serious and lengthy jail term on these charges if he'd been convicted. But rather than putting the case on in the criminal process, the government transferred Omari uh, essentially overnight in the dead of the night to a military prison in South Carolina where they cut him off from access to the outside world. As his attorneys, we couldn't see him for a year and a half. He had no access to the courts, to the outside world. I mean, he was in basically a, effectively what was a black site in the United States. Do you know how he was treated while he was in custody? I mean, he was grossly mistreated the, in custody. It was prolonged sensory deprivation, stress positions, numerous other forms isolation? of- Isolation? Oh, absolutely, total isolation. 18 months, complete isolation, yeah. complete isolation. It was a clear violation of the Constitution and the Geneva Conventions. And so we challenged his detention in court and the case worked its way up ultimately to the Supreme Court and the court in uh, the fall of 2008 granted our petition for certiorari and said it was going to review whether the president could order a person to be detained indefinitely by the military in the United States. Uh, and then the Obama administration came into office that January and mooted the case up to avert uh, a Supreme Court ruling on this issue. And Mr. Omari was transferred back to the criminal justice system and a negotiated agreement. He pled guilty to one count of material support, served about five and a half years, uh, which was reduced for all the time he'd been Sorry. detained and enemy combatant and mistreated, and then was removed to Qatar, where he lives freely now. So let's talk about what just happened today on July 30th in the case of Hassoun. So today, the Second Circuit panel, which was at this point not being asked to decide anything because the parties had agreed, the government and Mr. Soon's lawyers, we had agreed to a pause on their effort to appeal and seek a, a stay pending the full appeal because the government had indicated its intent to remove Mr. Soon by July 27th. And so even though the case was effectively moot, we're going to be moot, and there was no need for an opinion. The court issued an order granting the stay and said, I'm going to issue an opinion. And this was a uh, totally rogue action by an appellate court that uh, simply wanted to try to get an opinion on the books when, when, it, when it wasn't warranted. And their opinion gets it completely wrong. I mean, this is like an opinion from the Stone Age. They act as though the Supreme Court had not three times rejected the power to hold someone indefinitely without meaningful habeas review and due process. Those three times being? The cases of Rasul versus Bush, Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, and most importantly, Boumediene versus Bush. where the All court three said, Guantanamo. Yeah, all cases. three Guantanamo and Boumediene saying that the Constitution says that even someone at Guantanamo is entitled to habeas review, habeas review. meaningful review by a judge of the facts. Mm -hmm. But what's worse is, or it's just as bad, is that Second Circuit seems to treat 
this say basically there's no difference even between people we capture on a battlefield and people who are arrested in the United States and held in indefinite civil detention. And so they're essentially trying to green light a form of preventive detention that's flatly in violation of the Constitution. And I think also the Hassoun case is the clearest example possible about why courts matter, why judicial review matters, and whether it's military authority, or, but it's especially if it's civilian authority, and we're talking about citizens or non-citizens in this country, when the government wants to lock someone up, why it's so critical that the court have all this power. And I think what the uh, you know, what the district court said, it got it exactly right. I mean, that distilled to its core, the government's position is that it should be able to tame Mr. Soon or someone like him indefinitely based on executive branch say-so, and that its decision is insulated from any meaningful review by the judiciary. That was the government's position, and that is so clearly wrong. I mean, there's no precedent that supports this. I mean, this isn't a case where we're talking about review of a immigration removal. This isn't about whether a court reviewing whether or not the government can remove someone. It's about whether the government has the power to hold someone indefinitely, potentially for the rest of their life. And the risk is that this type of authority could be expanded against others in Mr. Assun's situation, people who can't be removed, but also I think more broadly, that the government, the Department of Homeland Security, which is today uh, in the business of, of, of detaining citizens as well, or protesting, will use their authority to hold people and lock them up uh, without due process. I think it's uh, uh, it is a very, very dangerous argument that the government made, which the district court correctly rejected. And we plan to have the Second Circuit opinion wiped off the books because it cannot stand. It's totally improper. How does that happen? How do you get a, an opinion wiped off the books? Well, there are multiple ways and we're charting our path forward, but it's certainly improper for the court to have issued a decision when there was no need and when the case was moot and there's no ability to challenge it um, in a full appeal or to the Supreme Court. Right. And so a couple of things. One is this alliance between DHS and various components of DHS and DOJ, which we're seeing played out in a number of contexts, whether it's the immigration issue, whether it's the protests, like in Portland, or whether it's this case, right? So is there any way to keep some of these authorities separate from each other or not? In, in, a, in an ideal world, if you were going to raise, raise a wand and say, how can we protect against this kind of thing? Is that possible? I mean, I think it should be possible. I think DS needs to be seriously... DHS. Need, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. I think it's a rogue agency that needs to be seriously cabin chastised, reformed, potentially abolished and replaced with something else. Uh, but I think the Patriot Act, this provision is unconstitutional and that the Congress should eliminate it. But if it doesn't, detainees like Mr. Assoon should at least have the ability to challenge their detention as the district court did. Uh, I think certainly, you know, and we're going kind of beyond what's happened in Mr. Assoon case, but I think, you know, DHS is in no business locking up protesters for expressing their first amendment uh, rights. And, I, you know, what's kind of striking also, Karen, just to step back about this case is the government claimed what a grave threat Mr. Assoon was, that he couldn't be released under any circumstances, even with an ankle monitor, on home arrest in his sister's house in Florida, with all his communications monitored. He was such a grave threat and yet produced no evidence of that. And at the same time, uh, we have this, the, the government, this administration failing to keep Americans safe. I mean, every three days we have 
the same amount of Americans dying as died in 9-11. So I, I, it's not directly relevant, but I do think it comes from the same place. It comes from a disregard of the law, disregard of the facts, and a total politicization of national security. The government had no intent. They, they knew Mr. Assun doesn't present, never did and doesn't present a threat to national security. It's totally political. They said, we're not going to let someone who was convicted of a terrorism offense be released in the United States. I think they don't care at all about national security. And I think this case makes that very clear, as does the events of the last five months. Two things in the opinion that came down today I just want to get your thoughts on. One is the reference to the term enemy combatant. Were you surprised to see that? I mean, it's surprising to see that in the sense that the Second Circuit seems to fail to realize that there's no difference between an enemy combatant captured on a battlefield and a civilian arrested in the United States, which is completely wrong. And second of all, it's also shocking because even enemy combatants at Guantanamo have gotten more protection than Mr. Assun has gotten. What they're trying to do in this case, the Justice Department, is set the clock back to before all the Supreme Court decisions, kind of back on 9-11, when President Bush said, I'm king, I get to lock up and try anyone I want uh, without due process and without habeas review. And that's effectively what they're going for here. So one of the other things that's in this opinion issued today that I just wanted to bring up, they talk about the regulation that allowed for the detention of an alien who they were worried about compromising national security if, if he was let out. And then it says, and it's the same for holding someone with a communicable disease. In other words, they introduce into the language of the opinion the notion that this idea of being set free is comparing a terrorism fear to a communicable disease fear. And I just wondered why that's in there. I mean, I think it's in there because the judges want to try to make a kind of placeholder for sweeping power. I think it's they have the law totally wrong. These people should study constitutional law uh, before they get on the bench. But I would say, if you look at the cases, if you actually bother to look at the cases, the Supreme Court precedents from time immemorial, what they say is that the rationale for holding someone with a communicable disease is because they pose a potential threat, but also it's because they can't control their own conduct. And so that's the whole basis for civil commitment. You have someone who's mentally ill and they pose a threat to themselves or others, but because they're ill, they cannot control their own conduct because of the mental illness. Once you open the door to get rid of that lack of control point, and you say that someone's dangerous, even though they have control over their behavior, you're crossing the Rubicon. You're entering into a totally new world where the government gets to lock up people because they think they're dangerous. And today that's Mr. Assun. But I promise you, and I've certainly promised you this administration stays in power much longer, that tomorrow that will be people engaging in protest, people who support movements like Black Lives Matter and other protest movements. And the government's going to say, uh, uh, you know, that person poses a threat. Uh, we're going to lock you up and we don't have to charge you with a crime. I mean, if you want Donald Trump, Bill Barr and Chad Wolf making decisions about who's dangerous and who gets to stay in prison and who doesn't, uh, I mean, you know, you know, good luck if you want to live in a society like that, because uh, the democracy and the rule of law will crumble and we will fast move to what people fear is already happening in the United States. So this case and the, the authority the government claimed and this ludicrous opinion by the Second Circuit is a move to cross the Rubicon and take power that is plainly prohibited by the Constitution and would, I think, be incredibly detrimental uh, to the future of, of this country and is bound to be uh, misused. Yeah, and done in the light of day. 
And done in the light of day. Done in the light of day, which has been a consistent theme of much of this administration and what we've seen. As you probably know, we end the podcast on a note of hope, or at least we tried to. I must say that the last few guests have first started by saying, I can't think of anything hopeful, and then found something hopeful. Given the fact that this decision came out today and the fact that we are now in a world where much of what we were worried about in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 is now in us in a, in a kind of a magnified way in some cases. Do you have any thoughts about, if not hopefulness, like what could be done to make it a more law-abiding, rule-of-law-abiding society? Well, I mean, I think there needs to be you know, serious reform. I think the Justice Department essentially, as demonstrated in this case, acted totally unconscionably uh, and as a you know rogue agency under this administration, there needs to be serious reform. I think that there are you know serious problems with uh, in, within the judiciary. I mean, the, a case like this where a judge judges go out of their way to issue an opinion that has no basis is very troubling. Uh, I think I, I find uh, uh, some hope in the in the system, and there are still good people. And I think um, certainly the way the, the district court handled this case you know, gives me hope. The judge did not issue all the rulings we wanted. I mean, we wanted the judge to strike down the statute as unconstitutional as written. The judge said, I'm not gonna do that right now. Uh, the judge ruled for the government on a number of issues in the case that I'm not gonna give you, uh, Mr. Assun, all the protections you get at a criminal trial. But nevertheless, um, she said, I'm gonna have a fair hearing. I'm gonna find out what the facts are. The facts matter. And so we shouldn't be debating these issues without knowing what the facts are. And then after, Seeing what happened, I, I, it's you know, hard to see the judge stand up to the government and not to the government, but to the judiciary and say, here, I've looked at the facts and I conclude this, this memo, these FBI allegations are an amalgam of unsworn, uninvestigated, discredited statements by jailhouse informants presented in facts. And I'm not going to allow you to detain someone for the rest of their life based on these falsehoods. So I take away hope from that the system did work in this case at least in terms of testing the government's allegations and facilitating and securing Mr. Assun's release. And so in that sense, I mean, you know, he, he was released from jail because the system worked. He, should, he never should have been detained for this long. But at least, you know, I think the system is at least still capable of producing those good outcomes. And there are many good people involved. But I think this case shows that there's a deep corrosive rot uh, within the Justice Department and within the national security apparatus, where the idea of national security is wildly expansive, wildly divorced from facts, and driven by politics uh, as opposed to concerns. So uh, the courts can work. We have to hope that they do work in the way you've seen them work in the district court in this case. And it comes down to individuals. And one of those individuals, it comes down to is you. So I'm hopeful. Oh, and my, uh, we have also an amazing legal team uh, at the ACLU, at uh, the MacArthur Justice Center, uh, and at the Chicago uh, Immigrants' Rights Clinic. Yeah, there's uh, no question. So, so, yeah, I mean, this, is, this case was litigated by the ACLU, uh, myself, Brett Kaufman, Charlie Hogel, by Jonathan Manis at the MacArthur Center for Justice, and Nicole Hallett at the Chicago Law School Immigrants' Rights Clinic. And this is the most ta- you know, one of the most talented yeah. teams and dedicated teams uh, I've ever worked with. And the fact that Mr. Soon is now free is a tribute to this team above all. Jonathan Hafitz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Karen. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. 
We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interest online forum at centeronnationalsecurity.org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.